Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 110 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great THR's chief TV critic, my dear friend and co-host for 109 more of these, Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. What up, Leslie? How are you celebrating uh, the the upcoming one-year anniversary of lockdown? By staying locked down? Pretty Is much, pretty much. Yeah. Unless, unless you're in Texas, and, and if you're one of our Texas listeners, be careful, y'all. We like yeah. you. <laughs> please please stay safe out there, guys. Um, but yeah, my mom's getting the second uh, vaccine this weekend, so I'm feeling very relieved about that. Um, and I guess, you know, you know, Biden said every adult American could be vaccinated by May, by uh, the end of May. There, sh- there should be enough vaccine enough for vaccines. every American by right. May. I think they're saying July in theory for when we should be all vaccinated, which is fine. I didn't have anywhere to go before then. <laughs> I mean, Dan, it'd be really nice to be able to record in the same room again, because I see you on a tiny little box on, on this Google Hangout that we're on. And man, I miss being in the same room and recording with you. But how long even after we've all been vaccinated, is it going to be okay to be in cramped rooms with groups of people again? Who knows? Anyway, happy upcoming quarantine anniversary, people. We're all just doing the best we can. Keep it up. Yep. Well, let's dive into headlines, huh? Leading off in headlines this week, Jenny Lumet, the co-creator of Clarice and the upcoming Man Who Fell to Earth on Paramount Plus, has signed a four-year, eight-figure overall deal with producers CBS Studios. And this is a great reminder that you should definitely check out our deep dive interview with her from episode 107 in February. If you haven't done so already, it's one of our best. Definitely. It's also a chance to find out all of our first co- uh, concerts. In streaming pickups, Glow creator Liz Flahive and Carly Mensch have inked an overall deal with Apple and set a star-studded anthology called Roar, which explores what it means to be a woman. Nicole Kidman, Cynthia Erivo, Merritt Weaver, and Alison Brie will star in the anthology. HBO Max has added The Girl Before limited series starring Gugu Mbatha-Raw and David Ayelowo. 
And Amazon-owned IMDb TV has greenlit a Bosch spinoff starring, naturally enough, Titus Welliver. In premium cable news, HBO is teaming with Spike Lee for a docuseries to mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And Stars is getting the band back together for a party down revival that's currently in the development stages with the original cast and creatives attached. Excellent. And in broadcast no-brainers, Seth Meyers has extended his overall deal with Universal TV and will remain host of NBC's Late Night through 2025. And The CW has renewed Superman and Lois for a second season, just like it's renewed absolutely everything. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, The Simpsons has been renewed for two additional seasons. I mentioned back in headlines something being a no-brainer. This one, also a no-brainer. This will take the long-running, and that might be an understatement, animated comedy through its 34th cycle and the 2022 and 2023 broadcast season. But the renewal was apparently not as much of a given as I would have thought. Leslie shall explain. Yeah, you you know, you filed this under a no-brainer. And yes, the renewal for The Simpsons used to be a no-brainer. That's when Fox actually owned the show. And of course, The Simpsons was one of the major assets that was included in the $72 billion deal that sold the Fox's TV studio and library to Disney a few years ago. So this is now the second time that Disney and Fox have had to renegotiate for a Simpsons renewal. And, you know, what's interesting about this show to me is well obviously it's the simpsons it's it's iconic i remember watching you know the 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 segments on tracy ullman when it first came out and when i worked grew up working at a comic book shop having all of the crazy amounts of simpsons inventory and everyone walking around saying i caramba and now i am officially dating myself but what's interesting about covering the show now is it's a loss leader. You know, Fox does not make a ton of money on this show anymore. Disney, however, does because they they have to sell the, the show to Fox. So in 2019, the last time that Disney and Fox negotiated, the first time that Disney and Fox negotiated for a renewal for The Simpsons, they negotiated a, a reduced licensing fee, which means the, the money that Fox was paying Disney to air the show, to license the show, they reduced that that fee. So it's like, hey, The Simpsons, you know, you were paying X amount and now it's on sale for a discounted fee because the ratings for it just aren't what it was, you know, 20 years ago. So what's interesting, too, is how Fox is now using it. So rather than trying to make money off of it, they're using it as a launch pad. The same thing goes for Family Guy and Bob's Burgers. Those shows are also owned by Disney and were part of the massive asset sale from Fox to Disney a few years ago. And they're using these animated comedies to launch new shows. Fox, we've, as we've talked about on the show multiple times, Fox has been making a major push for animation. They just announced this week that they're launching a, a new Monday night animated comedy block come May, where they're going to launch, I think it's the return of Duncanville and newcomer Housebroken. So they're trying to, you know, they, they bought Bento Box, which is an animation company that does uh, the animation for Bob's Burgers, among other shows. They want to own these shows. The Simpsons is super profitable because they own it, because Disney owns the show. So when Fox owned, owned the show and aired it itself, it didn't matter if it was a loss leader or not. They owned it. They made money on the, on the licensing fees. They made money on the global sales. They made money everywhere on this show. But now that Disney owns it, Disney actually stands to profit to go to make billions more on The Simpsons if Fox doesn't renew it. If that show changes platforms, 
all of those decades old contracts that were drawn up for the Simpsons get torn up and have to be completely redone. And as you can imagine, like everything else in, in the TV industry these days, the prices for everything has skyrocketed. So you have a massive library, 700 plus episodes, all streaming on Disney Plus. I think it's the current season, I believe, on on Hulu. They could make a killing. Disney could make a killing if this show moved move networks or move platforms for first run, not just library. I mean, it's always going to be, it's always going to stream in the Disney ecosystem. But if there was a world in which Fox said, you know what, we're not going to pay to air the Simpsons anymore, which won't come at least now for two more seasons. But if that world did open, Disney could sit there and say, great, we'll, we'll take this and we'll go move it elsewhere and we'll redo all these global deals and cha-ching. So for now, it's, it's kind of like a holding pattern. So Fox will keep it as is, try to launch some of these other shows. And now you've got The Simpsons, Bob's Burgers, and Family Guy, all three shows on the same renewal track. They're all renewed through the 22-23 broadcast season. So super interesting. People think that The Simpsons will go on forever. It probably will. The big question that I have is how much longer it will be on Fox beyond this two-year renewal. So quick little look at, at, at a story that most people thought of as a no-brainer, but uh, I'm fascinated with. So thanks for humoring me with this segment, Dan. I think it's I think it's all very interesting. I think the The Simpsons is and remains fascinating. And you will always, when you post news stories about The Simpsons, get the same responses on Twitter about how the show hasn't been that good. That show's for. still on. Oh, certainly that one, but also just the the that show's still on and it sucks and it sucked for 15 years, 18 years, 20 years. And there there's no other way for me to say this. That's ridiculous. And it's also wrong. Is the show as good as it was in season four or whatever your iconic golden Simpsons season was? No, it's probably not. Are its peaks as high? No, they're not. Are its peaks as consistently high? Good gracious, no. Uh, but this is a show that still, in any given season, has a handful of really good episodes and one or two bonafide, still top-tier classics. So you look at the at the comic book guy origin episode from earlier in this season with the Wes Anderson influences, and that was just a great episode of The Simpsons. A couple weeks ago, you look at the episode that they did that was saying goodbye to uh, to Mrs. Krabappel because they hadn't had the chance to, to truly say farewell to that character when Marsha Wallace died. It, it was an emotional and good episode, and the kind of episode that having... 30 years of institutional memory with the show, it buys you. And so when I step back and look at this, you mentioned 700 episodes. The show's going to hit 700 episodes this spring. 700 freaking episodes of TV. This is not just a show at this point that has aired for a generation. This is a show that spans across multiple generations. It isn't just that nobody alive in Generation Z has been alive in a world without The Simpsons, because that is certainly the truth. But much of millennials have not lived in a world in which The Simpsons didn't exist. We're talking 34 freaking years. And if the show is not giving you a classic every single week, and it's not. There there are bland weeks. I, I can't deny that. There are weeks where I don't really chuckle or where I go, oh, they did that plot in season 21 and in season 7 and in whatever. 
there are enough weeks that make me go, yeah, that's still the show I love. I still love these people. That's 22 minutes well spent. So so don't give me that The Simpsons hasn't been good in 30 years. Maybe it hasn't been great in a few years, but it's still pretty solid. But you're also comparing it to the the scores of other animated comedies that exist now. This was the, the, the first one out of the gate. All of the shows, all these big animated shows that have come since there owe a debt of gratitude to The Simpsons for paving the way. And make no mistake, you know, this is it's an iconic property at this point. I mean, it, it, it has been an iconic property. I'm not saying anything new here. But keep in mind, as much work that goes into this show, it takes so much longer to produce an animated episode of television. Especially in, during a pandemic when everything is continues to be even more remote and you're relying on on, you know, different ways of, you know, getting large files across the country and then back and forth and doing people doing voiceover from home. And I mean, look, everyone's got a memory tied to The Simpsons. You know, I'm just going to share a quick one or two of mine. I remember um, Marsha Wallace came into the comic book shop that I worked at. I grew up working at Golden Apple here in L.A. and just the whole the whole staff kind of and every all the customers that were in the store kind of gathered around and just to hear her talk and, and tell stories about the Simpsons. And I remember waiting on Michael Jackson. Uh, he came into into the shop once wearing a mask it, with a big stretch limo parked out front. And it was right after he did the uncredited guest voice on the show. And he just I remember my coworker came in. I called him. I'm like, dude, Michael Jackson's in the store. You got to come come down. He came running in and he literally did a moonwalk right in front of him. But uh, he signed for everybody in the store, signed Simpsons toys for everybody. It was, you know, it was a moment. And and then he bought like a, a crap ton of, of Simpsons stuff and a guitar magazine with Slash on the cover. And, you know, it was just that show. People remember where when where they were when it was on. They remember the mem- the memories of, you know, the first time they heard Bart say I Caramba or the first T-shirt that they had or the action figures, you know, like they're it's to your point it's it's now a show that is being shared across generations and that i think shows why that library has so much value to it so fx did an entire platform like hey we have every simpsons episode i remember when that that was a huge deal you know so imagine the opportunity that exists if if disney were to crack open those contracts and and redo a lot of that stuff so it's it's interesting topic to to continue to monitor the next couple of years and to see what happens but Give, give some respect. That's what I have to say. So, Number two. Up next, let's file this one under. Thank God that's over. The 2021 Globes are in the books. The Crown led the pack. Schitt's Creek and the Queen's Gamut also took home multiple wins. But, Dan, talking about the winners is, you know, it's it's a weak hold at this point, right? Let's, you know, instead, let's focus on the telecast. You're uh, obviously THR's chief TV critic. And it had a lot of feelings after watching the Globes. And it seems like the audience really just wasn't there. So the, the ratings for the show on NBC notched a 13-year low, under 7 million total viewers, and a 1.52 in the all-important adults 18 to 49 demographic. That's the advertiser-coveted demographic. That's down more than half from last year's show. But let's talk about what happened here, Dan. This production was a complete shit show to say the least what worked what didn't work do you have a highlight i mean for me it was sandra oh setting up palm springs with the tiny little dinosaur being pulled behind her because a i love palm springs and b i love me some sandra oh but what was what what worked for you what didn't work let's hear it 
Well, first off, I should say that uh, that TV's top five, uh, former TV's top five guest Joe Adalian would want us to note that those numbers, while pretty embarrassing by Golden Globe standards and whatnot, by the standards of today's live TV viewership, they aren't that bad. I but you're mean... not paying <laughs> a crazy amount of money oh. to, to air the Golden Globes to get not that bad by broadcast standards. Airing an award show is way more expensive than airing an episode of a scripted show. And paying uh, that money to an ethically questionable organization that could at any moment uh, be thrust into one shame spiral or another based on various horrifying behaviors on their part. So it becomes a question of at what point do, you, do the ratings become insufficiently high that being in business with the clowns at the Hollywood Foreign Press is no longer of value? So that's not a question for me to answer. That's a question that NBC should have to be asked very frequently, and I wish they did executive sessions at TCA still because, boy, would I want to ask that question to somebody in charge there. Uh, okay, so you asked for highlights and lowlights. Um, the Sandra, the Sandra O oh gag was a very, very good gag, and my favorite part about it was that it required that you figure out what was happening because you didn't necessarily know what she was actually doing there at first. She didn't say, I'm here to present the clip for Palm Springs, because if she'd said that, then you just would have gone, oh, ah, it's a dinosaur behind her. No, she's talking about the vague description of the movie as a dinosaur on a wagon gets slowly pulled across <laughs> the screen with utterly perfect timing on a, on a show that did not have many good gags. That one was so top notch. And she is, as always, a person whose ability to do a deadpan line of dialogue is verging on unparalleled. Uh, you know, someone like someone like a Natalie Morales is sort of in the same category, but she's about as good as it gets. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's a And good let's one. not forget Sandra O oh and Andy Samberg previously hosted the Globe. So there is a, a history there. Indeed. Um, so. Let's see. What else was good? As always, the Globes telecast does well with the people they give honorary awards to. And so you can almost safely guarantee that you'll get a couple good emotional uh, speeches or clip packages. And so this year was Norman Lear and Jane Fonda, and those were both completely effective and emotional. Some of the sort of off-the-cuff reactions to the Zoom Awards speeches were engaging in their own way uh you know the director of minari's uh daughter jumping into his arms that was that was cute uh jodie foster's dog jumping into her arms during her speech with one of the awards that i would say is probably the one of the more genuine man i did not expect to be winning this particular awards moments jodie foster had virtually no expectation of being there <laughs> and let's just talk about jodie foster for a second or allow me to talk about jodie foster for a second so from being uh, from being afraid of coming out in Hollywood to sitting in her pajamas on her couch with her wife and kissing her on live television after winning a Golden Globe points for visibility there Dan it's it's funny it's notable it's something some word uh tracing 
Jodie Foster's personal journey through her appearances at the Golden Globes, because the 2013 Golden Globes, where she won, I believe the Cecil B. DeMille or whichever Lifetime Achievement Award that was, was one of the first times that she came out publicly. And part of but it was kind of like when you watch that and you're like, did she just come out? Did she not? You know, oh, like it was it was totally ambiguous. And it was well, it was pseudo ambiguous. You know, she said like, if you know what she's doing and you listen to what she was doing, it was very clear what she was doing. But it wasn't like she just came out and did it. But it was also the the whole text of that speech was I resent that the world makes people do this in these public ways. I've been living my life perfectly out except for when people directly ask me questions about it. So she viewed that as being an imposition. And this year, as you say, she was sitting with her wife on a couch in pajamas with her dog and she kissed her wife and that was just the life she was living. So yeah, yeah guess what I did when that aired, Dan, I leaned over on the couch and kissed my wife. Oh, yeah. and what was your dog doing? Uh, sleeping in the corner on her oh, okay. bed. Like okay. a I, was, I wasn't sure how much you were recreating <laughs> a tableau or something. Um, we came yeah. close. We came close, Dan. So, so, okay. So that's a good mo- moment. But if, if you look at the show in the, and there were other good moments, let's, let's be clear on that. But if you look at the show in the balance, it was such a technical disaster and it was a technical disaster for absolutely no good reason. If you go back to what I said about the Emmys, I was very admiring of that Emmy's telecast, because if you want to talk about technical achievements in a moment of adversity, what the Emmys did was as technologically successful completely a show as you could possibly do. In contrast, this felt like a show that was being done by people who were in the first week of quarantine and weren't really sure what the technology was so you had from the very first award of the night which was to uh which was to Daniel Kaluuya and his audio went out on the first freaking award of the night that gave you an indication of where the rest of the show was going and there were horrible sound cues throughout they had trouble doing transitions to the zoom winners throughout they never knew what to do with the cameras in either of the two events that uh tina fey and amy poehler were hosting so there was at least one time during one of those pointless clip packages which i feel like are part of the only reason why the studios still honor this show is that they just get to air a trailer and call it a a clip package uh there were things like where there was a crane shot of the tv showing the clip package And like, to me, as a person who watches things being directed, all I can do is go, boy, was the director bored or did the other cameras all knock out at the exact same moment and he was forced to do that? It's an unsupportable aesthetic decision. And the show was just full of things like that. And so, again, going circling back to whatever the ratings were. But um, before there, there's yeah. we're, we're forgetting possibly the worst moment of the night, and that's when the members of the HFPA came out on stage and addressing the controversy about its lack of black members and the payola that exists within its organization, et cetera, said, hey, we'll do better, and then provided absolutely no insight into how or any roadmap into change, or it was basically like, yeah, you caught us, but here's an award coming up next. And I would say they did not actually in any way acknowledge the payola. I feel like there was a lot of acknowledgement of the lack of black members. And I think that is an important part of the L.A. Times story from a couple weeks ago. But I think it's a story that is more than just a simple 
there are no black members. And so you had people like uh, like Sasha Baron Cohen making jokes about the all white Hollywood foreign press. That's not true. OK, let's just be perfectly clear on this. The Hollywood foreign press is not all white. The Hollywood Foreign Press is an international organization of clowns, sorry, of reporters. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, they come from all around the country. And not the country, the world. <laughs> sorry, killed Leslie. Apologies. Uh, they come from all around the world, which means that they do have members from all manner of continents that aren't Europe. So what they do not have, as they has been made manifestly clear is black members, but they do have, they do have members of Middle Eastern extraction of, they have Latinx members, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay. And they have photos of themselves at swanky hotels in Paris. And they do. What I feel like though, that we lost in the conversation was any sort of acknowledgement about where the money from NBC is going. And so in order to deflect from that, every single segment basically was uh, preceded by a we're giving this amount of money to charity as if to say we are a nonprofit. We did get many millions of dollars from NBC. Here's where the money's going. As if to say, please don't ask why our former presidents are being paid $1,000 a month uh, for absolutely nothing. Please don't ask why our members of various committees are being paid thousands of dollars a month for absolutely nothing. All allegedly, we should emphasize, this is all in the wonderful LA Times story on the subject. So yeah, it felt like they basically decided which controversies they wanted to acknowledge in the most half-assed way humanly possible, and then ignore the ones that probably, you know, could get people thrown in jail or tax-exempt status put in jeopardy. They decided to pretend that stuff wasn't happening. Uh, but again, this all just circles back to to the question at the very top of the segment, which was, what is the number of viewers at which it no longer behooves NBC to be in business with this organization, with their very, very random and questionable taste, with their semi-arbitrarily selected membership? The LA Times has had several good follow-ups. Apparently, uh, one of the late heads of the organization actively said last summer, do we need to bring in a diversity uh, consultation so that we can figure out if there are things we can do better? Which is pretty much just the bottom line. It's the, it, do we want to see if we can be better? And the group apparently decided, no, they do not want to see if they can be better. At what point does the viewership that NBC is getting for that show no longer justify that <laughs> yeah and and you know the the question too is were the ratings bad because of the controversy around the the organization were the ratings bad because people most people haven't left our house and and or haven't and, and most may not have seen a lot of the the films that were nominated and you know with streaming's dominance i think there was what jane levy was the only nominee from a broadcast show like with streaming's dominance you're relying on people to to subscribe to all of these different platforms right so how many people actually saw ted lasso how many you know like that you know you're going to get me down into the you know digital ratings no but know, i think black but I think, hole but it's, it's a good, it's a valid question you know so and, but, and but for you right. dan yeah but but for you dan will you watch the golden globes next year almost certainly but it, largely because i'm a, a compulsive viewer of of such things and also because i have the ability and capacity to to tear them to shreds i think if you if you want to be entertained by the trashiness while being conscious of where the awards are coming from i think that's a a valid way to <laughs> respond to life uh just sometimes the shows are better produced and more entertaining and so if you're going to give me trash at least make it well packaged trash this year's trash was very very poorly packaged 
And we should note the Golden Globes Awards ceremony is produced by Dick Clark Productions, a division of MRC, which is a co-owner of The Hollywood Reporter through a joint venture with Penske Media titled PMRC. Up third. Number three. As winter slowly but surely turns into spring, it's time to take a look back at the hits and misses of winter TV. Joining us this week is THR TV critic Ingu Kang. Ingu, as you look back at the TV landscape from this holiday season through the first two months of the year, do you have one show that stands out as saying, this show got me through this like awful, awful, awful part of the pandemic? No. (laughs) For winter TV, no. Um, I think also because if you're a TV critic, I I think Dan can vouch for this. We're not generally watching things from week to week. Like it's all just like super crammed into like an afternoon or something like that. Um, And so I don't know, like I watch things in like one afternoon and then it sort of like disappears into my mental ether. But I will say I really did love The Lady in the Dale which is the HBO documentary about a trans con woman who was trying to sell America a car in the 1970s that did not actually exist. A three-wheeled car, I believe, that she called the Dale. And I really loved It's a Sin, which is a British import from HBO Max. Um, as soon as I describe it, like your desire to watch it will probably completely dissipate, which is it's a miniseries about AIDS. However, it is done with so much life and so much exuberance and so much texture um, and so much tonal variance that it's really hard to describe how alive the whole thing feels given that it's a show that is about a deadly plague. Um, I think if we're talking about stuff that's sort of like stuff that like makes me feel like I have something to look forward to at the end of all of this. I don't know when uh, Netflix's Lupin, Lupin is coming back, but that's something I'm looking forward to. I think May, that's May also, last I heard. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's a show that Dan is also really excited about. Indeed. And of course, uh, listeners got some taste of why It's a Sin is so very watchable. In last week's podcast, when we had creator Russell T. Davies on, and he gave lively and fun and humorous answers, even though he was talking about a horrible tragedy that impacted an entire generation. And that's the strange thing about the show, is that it is, you know, the specter of AIDS doesn't just hang over it. It is the text of the show, but it is a show about nostalgia as well, because there's a sense of the lives that were being lived before, and there's a joy in those lives, even if there's the obvious tragedy in what happened to them. It's it's very, very watchable. Also, it helps that it's only five episodes. They are between 45 and 50 minutes. And in this day and age, when people make me TV and episodes aren't 62 minutes, and they aren't giving me 10 episodes when their story was really worth six... I appreciate uh, economy. Economy is a joyful thing when it comes to storytelling also. <laughs> yeah, and you had Russell T. Davies on the on the podcast last week talking about how executives at the BBC wanted more of the show. They wanted to do a second season. And he said, no, this is co- completely closed-ended. This is it. I think it's the only way that Thatcher-era austerity has ever worked out for anyone. <laughs> Getting well, political here. 
I, it also worked out just fine for for Golden Globe winner Jillian uh, Anderson in uh, this week's Golden Globes telecast. So honestly, I think the whole like we didn't really talk about the crown in our back and forth, but I think um, this like very long cultural phenomenon that we're currently in the middle of, where we're revisiting. Um, women, I think like tabloid friendly women from the 90s and sort of like giving them a reconsideration. I think like 2020 for me was like the reconsideration of Diana and watching her in The Crown after I think listening to something like three different podcasts about Diana was just really great. That's honestly what got me through this pandemic. But you didn't also do a similar reconsideration of Margaret Thatcher, because that's the funny thing where where you hear the sort of the differences between Americans viewing these pseudo nostalgic uh, Thatcher era shows and British people who were alive in the time going, yeah, let's let's not make let's not make Margaret Thatcher Jillian Anderson level warm and fuzzy. Let's remember who she was and what she did. <laughs> I think the reconsideration of like the women project is mostly about like women underdogs in a lot of ways, right? Um, I don't think that anyone would consider Margaret Thatcher an underdog on any level. However, if I'm going to segue into something here, we did sort of get into like the 2000s era reconsideration of Britney Spears in the New York Times Presents Framing Britney Spears. That was not a documentary that I thought was particularly well done because I think it was trying to do too many things. But I think that hunger for more reconsideration, more re- recontextualization of Spears' is Spears's career, and especially her early years, is something that people are really interested in right now. And I think this was like a really good opening launch of like what we're going to end up doing with regard to Britney Spears. It's also a fun illustration of how a random episode of a news magazine type ongoing series that lots of people didn't know existed can somehow blow up entirely on its own and have no impact whatsoever on the actual series itself. I haven't heard anyone discussing the Britney Spears documentary in terms of FX, in terms of the New York Times, any of the things that it was associated with. So... I mean, isn't this like what the streaming era is supposed to be about? Like it became like a big thing because it ran on FX on, sorry, it ran on Hulu. Like I think the day after it aired on FX. And I think that's why people like were able to watch it on their own time. And that's why people got really excited about being able to have a conversation about it again. Which I think is just great and fine. But if you're actually an FX executive and your goal has been to try to keep an FX brand alive, the number of people I've seen referring to this exclusively as a Hulu miniseries, including in perfectly legitimate publications, not ours, of course, uh, but I've seen legitimate publications simply referring to this as a Hulu miniseries. And I feel like every single time that happens, John Landgraf dies a little bit inside. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's what Landgraf has been saying for years at TCA, that that it's not about the volume, it's about the brand, right? FX is synonymous with quality, but now you've, you've got FX on Hulu, where the, and the majority of all the FX shows that Landgraf and his, and his team have developed over the last couple of years, they're all debuting on FX on Hulu, which... No one's who cares about what channel within the streamer it's on. It's all part of the Disney thing. It's it's yeah, I, I digress. But yeah, well, now so, it's Disney's FX. So really that 
brand, I think, is getting, the branding is harder and harder. Are you guys surprised by how much uh, Alan V. Farrow seems to be not quite make, be making a splash? Is this like you guys' impression? I think it was always going to be a tough sell anyway. I don't think that this is, I don't think that the story in Alan V. Farrow is as entertainingly salacious and horrifying as something like the R. Kelly version of the story, which people did talk about because Woody Allen was always kind of a, you know, he's always been a marginal figure. Yes, he's had things that have been hits and he's always, you know, he won Oscars and all of that, but he still is a director whose ability to work has been based on his making one film per year for $20 million, it making $30 million and moving on to the next one. So I, like, I, I just feel like to some degree, he's always been a, a well, not always, but lately, he's been a niche figure. You know, let's say in the 70s, he clearly was not. Annie Hall, massive hit, all of that. But in recent years, niche figure. And so I think that that's led to the way that I feel like people in the media are talking about that documentary and not people at large. It does not feel like a phenomenon in the same way that Surviving R. Kelly felt. But also, there's a certain number of these documentaries and, you know, there's not fatigue exactly, but it's still exhaustion. It's still emotional weight that probably sets in. And so like last year, there were multiple uh, Jeffrey Epstein documentaries that nobody talked about that just kind of came out. And I watched every freaking minute of like three of them. That, like, Thank 11, you for your sacrifice. Like 11 hours of Jeffrey Epstein co uh, coverage that nobody talked about because I think everyone just was sort of set in their opinions on Jeffrey Epstein being a, a monster and the documentaries were not about really or truly, did he kill himself? You know, they weren't sensationalistic in the same way that people could latch on to. And I feel like to some degree, Alan V. Farrow has, has a similar thing. Like if you, if you've thought that Woody Allen has been a monster for 20 years, this isn't going to change your opinion. And if you've thought that Woody Allen was innocent for 20 years, I think probably this might muddle your opinion, but you're still going to find ways to to you know weasel out of it to some degree. So yeah, that that's that's sort of my read on it is is that it was always going to be a nichier thing, and and it's tough to watch. It's tough to tough to get yourself up to it. I don't know that I ever would have expected it to be huge. Is what I'm saying. I think at this point, um, now that like two episodes have aired and people. Uh, are sort of, like, trying to, like, figure out, like, how they want to feel about this documentary. One thing that I think is really damning of the documentary for some people is the fact that it's not, quote-unquote, objective, which I think is sort of this talking point that's come out of the Allen camp where people are like, well, they didn't give uh, the Allen camp enough time to respond. And obviously this is taking the side of Mia Farrow and Ronan Farrow and Dylan Farrow. And therefore it's too one-sided to be considered like a real reckoning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't understand where people got this idea that documentaries are journalism um, or that documentaries can't be activism, which is, I think, like another like another way that I've heard Alan B. Farrow dismissed. Um, one of like my pet peeves is that people don't seem to understand like what documentaries are um, or sort of like how to judge them, I guess. 
And I think that's something that's like really coming out of the chatter around this for me. And it's, again, disappointing to see that people have these like very, like often quite fair, but also not exactly fair expectations for what this is supposed to be. Um, I think if you look at Kirby Dick and Amy Deering's other work, like On the Record, The Hunting Ground, The Invisible War, they didn't also go to the rapists, the alleged rapists, and say like, whoa, like, so did you do this or not? Like, tell us your side of the story. And so, yeah, I mean, like, Russell Simmons didn't say anything about his side for On the Record, Um, of course, because he wasn't going to. But I don't think that makes On the Record any less credible. Obviously, On the Record, I think, featured something like four to six victims. And I think there's something like 10 or 12 victims who have come forward about Simmons. And with Alan V. Farrow, there's only one primary sexual assault alleged victim. And so it's not quite the same thing. But I don't think that the Alan Camp's lack of participation necessarily means that it's possible to dismiss Dylan Farrow's allegations. Oh, of course not. And and the the notion that documentaries have to be, should be, whatever objective is a is a ludicrous and and ridiculous definition and you see and you see people make the claim all the time you know I've, i definitely saw people on, on twitter saying well it's not a documentary because it's one-sided documentaries have never been objective that's that's not what it is filmmaking is inherently non-objective you put a camera on someone you're choosing who to put the camera on you're choosing how to light them you're making choices in literally everything you do it is a subjective process and as you say the other uh dick zeering documentaries have all used a similar process in telling their stories and it is the process they use so yeah (laughs) Hey, should we talk about something not so serious? <laughs> yes, yes. Let's let's lighten stuff up a little, please. <laughs> All right. How, how about WandaVision? That that does feel like one of the shows that has broken through, at least according to my Twitter timeline. It, it does feel like like WandaVision has broken out. You know, we know that we don't know, have any kind of ideas on, on ratings, but we do know that Disney Plus crashed a couple weeks ago when the new episode was dropping, and we're saying this now just a few hours away from the WandaVision finale, which could be a season finale or, you know, or a series finale as it, you know, leads into the next Marvel uh, movie. But where do you guys stand on the show? Have you guys enjoyed the ride so far? Igor, are you staying up all night tonight to, uh, to watch the finale? Are you excited for that? I have been watching WandaVision every Saturday morning. Um, which is what it feels like to me, sort of like my version of a Saturday morning cartoon. I don't really care about what happens. Um, but, and, but, you know, there's like a lot of like razzle-dazzle. And I'm curious where they're going with it. But I just feel like I don't really care about any of the characters. Um, I think this is like a Marvel issue I have in general where... Like, I know that the good guys are going to win and, like, the bad guys are going to lose. And obviously, WandaVision is a lot more uh, emotionally complicated and animal than a lot of, like, other things in Marvel's menagerie. I don't know why I went with that metaphor. But, (laughs) uh, yeah, it's just, like, not really grabbing me other than sort of the weekly surprise of what succumbs they're going to go through. But I know that, Dan, you are a much bigger Marvel head. 
or at least the Wanda head. No, I, I like the show. I don't know that I love it as much as some people do. Um, it, it has, it's odd because it works for me in certain ways that have nothing to do with the story that's being told. And, and that's an interesting way of approaching a TV show. Like in terms of the weekly unfolding of the show, that's mostly the stuff that's happening with the various sword people outside of the hex. And every time they leave the hex, I'm always happy to laugh at Kat Dennings and Randall Park. I like them just fine. They're good. Give them a better show. I'm there. But anytime they explain what's happening right up until the Agatha reveal, I didn't care. So you get an episode like last week's episode, which was all about Wanda and her grief. And it's fascinating to me because on one hand, I don't think anything happened in the episode that surprised me. I don't think anything happened in the episode that I felt made anything else in the series revelatory. But on the other hand, I, I liked watching it. I, I thought that the episode was a great showcase for Elizabeth Ol Olsen. I thought it was a, a reminder of how great she was in Sorry for Your Loss and, and how great she can be when she's given better material. And I didn't care necessarily what she was grieving, but I fully bought that she was very, very miserable about it. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that's enough. And and Paul Bettany is great. So it's this it's an odd disconnect where I could watch it on Saturday morning. I've been watching it on, on Friday evening sometimes, Friday midday. There is nothing I don't think that you could spoil for me about that show that would impact my viewership. And that, to me, is part of what makes it a slightly different kind of project, because I just I'm not invested in a what's going to happen next, what's going to happen to these people. And yet I enjoy watching it for 30 to 37 minutes every week. I I empathize with the characters because I empathize with the performers and and that to me is enough reason to to watch it with enthusiasm but it's it's a different kind of viewership experience from what i expected from a series like this I think as we're heading into like a full year of quarantine, what I like about watching WandaVision is that I can sort of partake in a kind of national conversation um, that people aren't really having. And, you know, that's a really nice, cheering experience. It's a communal experience of the kind that like it's harder and harder to get, especially now. So... I think I really watch it for that and for what they're going to do with Catherine Hahn. Although in the most recent episode, they gave her like the most frightful eyebrows. If they keep giving her scarier and scarier eyebrows, I guess that's another reason to watch. There's, there's, only, like there's only one more week. So, so, <laughs> I, so either the eyebrows are going to attack her entirely or else. <laughs> I am enjoying the group experience. Am I? Do I really like the show? Like, eh. I think I do. As 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 quarantine communal experiences go, I definitely prefer it to Tiger King. So you know, th this is <laughs> this is just where this is just where we put the points of comparison. As things that everyone wants to talk about the next day on Twitter, I thumbs up to Wandavision, thumbs down to Tiger King. <laughs> Tiger King is gives you exactly that like false equivalency, quote unquote objectivism, objectivity that I guess people want from Alan V. Farrow, but, like, Tiger King was one of the most, like, journalistically heinous things I've seen in a very long time. So, take that. <laughs> I don't know that I remember anyone really and truly claiming that Tiger King was especially objective, so... <laughs> no, I mean, sort of just, like, pitting one side against the other as if they have, like, a similar moral equivalency. Hashtag justice for Carol Baskin, I guess. 
whatever. She killed her husband, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, anyway, you're part of the problem. We are we are definitely litigating old, uh, <laughs> old, old conversations, which probably means <laughs> that it's time to wrap this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Ingu. And of course, everyone should know that they can read more on this conversation in our back and forth on The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks, Ingu. Thanks, baseball heads. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guest this week is Emily Andrus, creator of sci-fi's cult hit Winona Earp. Her credits lean heavily into science fiction and include Lost Girl and Killjoys. She joins us as the fourth and final season of Winona Earp begins its last six episodes on March 5th. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the announcement in February that Winona Earp was ending with season four. As someone who has covered the show for a long time, the news came as a bit of a surprise considering there was a contract with producers IDW and Sci-Fi for a fifth season. What happened? Oh, Leslie, right to the deepest cut. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just no mercy. How can I say this? It was a surprise, but not a shock. We had sort of been greenlit for a season four and a season five. And for those who do not know, um, Earp went through some financial troubles. So we basically shut down uh, right after we had kind of started the writing room on season four. We waited a year. Our fans rallied. They bought billboards. They sent letters. uh, They sang songs. And it actually worked. We were back up and running for season four. We filmed about half of our season. And then on March 1st, this pandemic showed up. So we shut down again until August, managed to film the back half of season four. But by that point, we had basically spent two and a half years on season four, which was hard. Um, We weren't sure what was going to happen with season five. um, But needless to say, there's been a pretty big uh, change of guard at NBC Sci-Fi and at NBC in general. So I guess they made the decision that they had had enough demon hunting cowgirl show. Um, But I would be remiss if I didn't say that the fans are still working quite hard, hoping to continue the story and find a season five elsewhere, um, find a U.S. network. um, And the producers are working hard. And I would say I still have lots of herb story to tell. So what will be will be for sure. And I really hope that the fans are satisfied with the end of season four. I think it's wonderful. Um, But hopefully we will find a way to tell more stories. So you mentioned that the executive changes at Sci-Fi. We talk about that a lot on the show. You know, obviously Sci-Fi is now part of a content leadership group um, at NBC Universal that is led by Susan Rovner. And the executives who championed Winona Earp, Bill McGoldrick and Chris McCumber have both moved on. So can you talk us through what conversations you've had with Susan Rovner and, and her scripted team at NBC Universal about this decision? Like, 
what was the call that you got? Did you hear from them or did you hear from from IDW? And IDW, let's be honest here, isn't completely isn't guilt free here either, considering the way that they've managed their own resources as a company. Yeah, it's definitely complicated. Um, you know, I have to tread carefully here. I would say that I did hear from NBC. Uh, they were extremely nervous, but, uh, you know, that's always a hard call to make uh, to a showrunner to say that we are not going forward. Um, I was very Canadian about it, which is, uh, you know, seething with rage, but saying sorry to them, basically. No, just kidding. Um Look, I think the reality of Winona Earp, for better or for worse, speaks to where we are in the general landscape of television, which is it is a cult show with a passionate audience from all over the world. It really speaks to people uh, in particular who maybe don't see themselves represented on television and certainly not in genre very often, which is to say women and the LGBTQ community. Um, that all being said, it has never been a ratings hit. It just hasn't. It just hasn't for sci-fi for a billion reasons I could go into. Um, and at the end of the day, perhaps for a company like NBCU, that is still the easiest measure of success they have. Um, we are consistently at the top of uh, social media insofar as mentions and hashtags and all that goodness. We have hundreds of ERP conventions around the world put on by fans. Um, but how do you translate some of that into, I guess, just selling a show if you're a network? Um, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed. I was. But again, I would not say I was surprised. I just think it's, I just think it's hard to measure the success of a cult show if you are just looking at Nielsen ratings. When there's a change of guard and there's new people coming in and maybe they're not familiar with what made something special or beloved, sometimes that's the easiest way, that's the easiest metric of yes or no. Well, as you say, I mean, this is a landscape that in general has been shifting dramatically in the past five years. But even more specifically, sci-fi has gone through two or three different approaches to original programming since you guys launched in 2016. There there was a period where they were doing more adult graphic novel type adaptations. There was time where they were doing big tentpole franchise stuff like Krypton. And, and nothing has exactly necessarily stuck. So have you been able to feel those principles shift from inside? And have they had any impact at all on the story that you've tried or been able to tell? I mean, I have told them I'm willing to add as many Sharknados as they want at any time. <laughs> Honestly, if they want an all Sharknado episode, I'm game. I'm ready to go. Sharks and cowboy hats? I've, it's already written. No. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they have sought to define themselves, and that's tricky. Um, I would say in a weird way, Winona Earp kind of flew under the radar, so we never really had to compromise what we were. I feel like people were surprised that people were watching us and loving us, and a lot of people, with the exception of the executives you already spoke of, Leslie, who have left, didn't get it. Like, not in a mean way. I just think they, you know, when you're looking at a property like a Krypton, it kind of has this history and this kind of, like, pedigree. And Winona Earp is even a show that's hard to explain on an elevator pitch. It's just a weird little show. And that's what I love about it is it's not for everybody. Um, I mean, I would love it if everybody watched it, but it's definitely an acquired taste. 
So I didn't necessarily feel like we had to shift what we were, but you always see the writing on the wall as a showrunner, as the mandate at a network changes. You're like, well, that's not us, right? If you're like, it's superheroes and also really serious fare. And I'm like, we just did a whole episode about a chili cook-off that goes terribly wrong. Like, <laughs> it's not that serious. Um, you can kind of feel, you can feel the shift beneath your feet, but... You know, I'd be really remiss if I didn't say, like, it is frustrating as someone who is a female showrunner and very interested in female-led shows and shows that really represent people who don't see themselves on television. Again, the LGBTQ community in particular, I feel that there is sometimes a disconnect between lip service about what networks say they want and then what networks actually support. I do really want to be careful about this. Sci-Fi has been an incredible partner for four years. One thing in particular I think they should get a ton of credit for is our lead, Melanie Scrofano, was pregnant in second season. And when I say she was pregnant, I mean she gave birth three days after we finished wrapping second wow. season. So we went to Sci-Fi. We kind of did the math. This is a show about, um, you know, for better or for worse, a superhero. She can't kind of carry around laundry baskets all the time. Uh, you know, ever ever expanding like laundry baskets full of clothes. She was pregnant and she was going to look it. So we went to Sci-Fi and we said we have to play her pregnant. We have to play Winona pregnant. And Winona isn't, you know, she's basically a borderline alcoholic. She's pretty unapologetically like promiscuous. Good for her. She was not in a long-term relationship or really any relationship. Um, and second season feels like really early to have your lead become pregnant. But we really embraced that. And I always remember we went to Sci-Fi and I said, we have to do this. We have to play Winona Pregnant. And right away, they were like, 100%, we're not even scared. We're excited. We're so happy. Melanie's okay. And we know you guys can do it. Um, and for me, that was actually one of the most gratifying professional moments of my life. It was something I was really terrified about. And... I felt really supportive, and I think through adversity, it became an incredible story and just one of our best seasons. It's just so hard. Like, it's even hard, I would say, if I'm being honest, to be a showrunner. Like, you're just not privy to the decision-making behind the scenes. Do you know what I mean? And I think that, obviously, every showrunner in their right mind would, like, sign on for 15 seasons and Walking Dead money, baby. Um, but that's just not always the way the wind blows and... The other thing that is hard is like the show has been through a lot and we have already asked the fans to kind of rally for us. We asked them to rally for us in season four when IDW was unable financially to meet their commitments. So it, on principle, it feels hard for me to say to the fans, keep going, keep fighting, let's do this again. Like, I think they are fighting really, really hard. Um, and I think they do feel a little betrayed, to be honest. They know what they were promised. Um, but again, we'll just have to see what happens. You know, obviously talking about how the show has been through the ringer, you know, peak TV is an impossible landscape, but I've never really heard a story where the studio on the show, in this case, IDW, literally ran out of money and couldn't afford to, to literally have the show go on. It's, you know, and IDW, they're a comic book and, and book publisher. You know, IDW Entertainment is, it's the subsidiary of IDW Publishing, right? They've got a ton of comic books and novels and other shows, right? They're, they're doing, um, the Netflix hit Lock and Key, which has been renewed for a second season. It's a big budget show. It's been in the works for a long time, you know, but it's it's not a cheap show to, 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 to do. So, you know, considering that 
you've had production be derailed because the studio that was financing it ran out of money. And then sci-fi came in recognizing that ERP was a show with a big base and wanted to deliver the show. Sci-fi became the leading financer on the show. So when sci-fi makes the decision and says, we're not going to continue on, that obviously creates a need for funding. So just kind of semi-explaining this to our listeners who may not have followed the behind-the-scenes drama of the show. But, you know, con- considering everything that happened, you know, that you have a Canadian distributor space that's been great and stepped up financing to get season four made. But given everything that, that happened ahead of season four and then, of, of course, with the production delays and COVID of all of it, did you kind of approach this from a creative standpoint, as if this would be the final season? Did you know in your heart and when you were writing it that this is going to be it? I didn't know, but I was going to be damned if I was going to leave the fans empty-handed. I just had been through the ringer enough. I feel like they had bolstered us through all these insane times. Like, yeah, it's hard to explain to people not in the business how nuts it is. It's like, Nike saying, we want to order 200 pairs of shoes. And the factory saying, well, we just can't make the shoes. And Nike's like, we're going to pay you for the shoes. Just make the shoes. So it was a very wild time. But um, I definitely think the end of season four is satisfying. Let me put it that way. I just, and you know, you spoke of Bill McGoldrick, who was a huge supporter of the show. And we were always very honest with each other. And he may or may not have said to me, Emily Andrus, you are famous for 26 cliffhangers at the end of every season, uh, which I always do. And then like, I'm like, oh, future Emily will figure this out. And then, you know, future Emily's like, God damn it, past Emily, what are you doing? You know, I always say it's like when you when you feel really good at night and you set your alarm for 6 a.m. because you're going to go for a jog and then you wake up at 6 and you're like, what are you talking about, past Emily? I am not doing that. Anyway, um, Bill McGoldrick said, just in case, do you think that you could maybe do slightly less cliffhangers and give us a pretty good ending? And I promise if we can, we'll still do season five. And I said, yes. So I would say that being said, there are certainly things from the season that you will not have an answer on. You will be like, well, what happened with this and what happened with this? And who's that guy? And where did that person's pants go? I'm dying to know. Um, but I do not think emotionally you will feel dissatisfied. I'm, I'm just curious, though, because it is, you know, obviously every season on broadcast shows are on the bubble and, and they all have to choose how they're going to end their run. And there is some tradition of showrunners deciding, OK, the best way for me to guarantee that I get brought back in some capacity is to end with a cliffhanger that is going to cause the fans to absolutely take torches to a corporate office and burn things down. And sometimes it works, occasionally, and then often it doesn't work. And from your perspective, I'm curious if there was any consideration in your mind to leaving the season with the biggest damn cliffhanger ever just to make sure whatever. (laughs) I mean, and honestly, Daniel, like, I literally am known for that. Like, I honestly, like, after season three, I was like, we have left with so many cliffhangers that people are going to kill the network and me. They're going to find me. Like, you know, um, so that's why I fought like hell. Um, but when I give my word, it does mean something. And everything was in so much flux that I felt like in order to get season four, I had to promise that I would take that into consideration. So I did. And I did have a cliffhanger that I pitched to my network executive, who I loved at the time. His name was uh, Josh Van Hout. And I had a great cliffhanger, but he loved the other ending so much. And it made him quite emotional that he was like, that's your ending. 
Um, look, the truth is what a privilege in this day and age for those showrunners who are able to say, I have five seasons of a story and I know the very last seat. Um, and I think that is the truth for me and Winona Earp. If you had told me I was going to get five seasons, I knew exactly what those five seasons are. Um, again, I feel like we have more stories to tell, but I just, you got to make the deal you're going to make in the moment. And the thing in front of me was season four. I wanted to save season four. So that's what I did. And, yeah. you know, there were many times this year when I thought season five was a sure thing. If I'm being honest, I was like, oh, for sure. No problem. I know. And I know what it is. But I've learned in this business, it's sometimes the th things surprise you. Sometimes the things you think are never going to go get ordered. And sometimes the things you think are a slam dunk don't happen. So yeah. you just have to mitigate all those feelings. So let's talk a little bit about your hopes for that, that fifth season. Obviously, sci-fi pulling out as a financer when they were the biggest financial backer of the show is a problem. IDW does have a, a, a line of comic books, which your show is based on. Have you had any conversations about, first of all, where's the update about the show continuing on for season five? Are you talking, What are you getting incoming calls? Have you set up meetings with, with streamers and US networks and so forth? Where do things stand? One, thanks, Leslie. Like 100% we are in meetings all the time. And I am constantly getting an updated list from the producers kind of like ranking our targets of opportunity. You know what I mean? We're like, okay, it's this streamer, it's that streamer, it's this person. Well, let's touch on that too. Can you say anything about where the, where the talks are now? I mean, have you, like everyone's, right now, according to my Twitter feed, everyone wants the show on Paramount+. Plus. <laughs> I mean, fine, I'll do it. Stop begging <laughs> Yes, that's what I'm saying. Like, right, but what you know? But how serious are the calls? Like, have you like where where are the meetings now? Can you give us an update on on where and who's who has said yes and who is kicking the tires and who has said no? I can't say who has said yes and who has said no. I can say that like possibly someone you talked about, this Schmermont Schmuss, is definitely <laughs> in the mix. Um, I would also say that like in a weird way, while it may look more dire to the public, I think that season five is almost easier to save than season four because. Because of all the things we went through with season four, you mentioned um, Space, which is now in Canada at CTV Sci-Fi. They also really stepped up in season four financially. Um, we have an international distributor, Cineflix, that has sold it all over the world again. Um, Netflix US is still in as far as like second window. So really all we need is a US broadcaster, which is like not as much moving around the chess pieces as it even was in season four. Um, we just need one person who's kind of willing to take on this show with like the most insane, passionate fan base. Like they will just throw money at the thing and subscribe to your streamer and your channel. And, and, and the fans are yelling online. I mean, all the big ones aren't, all the big people are in play. You know what I mean? Like, honestly, I would say from IMDb TV to Paramount Plus to Hulu, like name a streamer. They have gotten a call from us. Um, and I really want to shout out to my producers behind the scenes working really hard, you know, to take those meetings and kind of showcase what this show brings to a network. Um, yeah, I, I just like I just I just think we're in it and it's going on. And I mean, one of the things that I that I write about a lot is how hard it is for these shows to find another home. And in this case, you know, so many of the factors are 
the international deals and the, and the streaming deals, right? Because if it goes to a streamer, and we talked about this a lot with One Day at a Time, uh, which obviously made history when it moved from from Netflix to find, you know, to a different ecosystem, obviously Viacom, CBS, and then, of course, what happened there. Um, but it's kind of what what's happening with you, with you, where, you know, Pop TV at Viacom is no more, and now, you know, it's part of a larger content portfolio. Same thing at NBCU with Sci-Fi. But the international rights and the streaming rights being locked up elsewhere often provide a roadblock to getting a show revived. Considering your, you know, how intimately involved you are in the conversations of getting this show and, and having the show go on with season five, how much are those things an obstacle for you right now? I mean, is that what you're hearing a lot of conversation around or are people willing to take a, a flyer on this considering that they, they won't have a library considering it's locked up at Netflix, for example? Um, I mean, it's locked up at Netflix, but Netflix are players. If you talk to Netflix, you can always negotiate something like without getting into it too much. Like if someone else wants the entire library, I'm sure people could work hard to make that happen. Um, I think it's just, it's, I think the show is kind of a hard sell to people who don't get it. And I think what we are banking on is showing this audience and showing like all these fans and people that are maybe hard to reach, right? Like tons of young women, again, tons of LGBTQ people who are just willing to go to die for this show. Um, please don't do that. Just subscribe to the new channel, <laughs> just a new streamer. Um, I mean, I think people are interested, but it's the same problem all the time. It's more and more, I'm sure you guys can speak to this more than I can. People want their own stuff. They want their own library. They want to own IP, right? They want to build their own brand. So my feeling is like, if you are the savior of Winona Earp, it's such a great story. And also you will have this built-in audience that you're bringing to your streamer or what have you. But we're just working to convince people of that. Speaking a bit about that that audience, I mean, obviously, so many shows, you know, they have a little audience, they have an audience that likes the show or whatever. The, the audience for this show is unquestionably a passionate, devoted, loud audience. Was there a moment towards the beginning or a moment or two when you suddenly realized that you'd not only struck a chord with some people, but to this degree? Oh, definitely. Like, I still remember just running around in the woods of Alberta, Canada for a season and being like, are we even taping this? Like, this just feels like we're doing crazy skits in the woods. I hope someone gets this. Um, I think the first time I really realized something was going on was we went to a convention, a fan convention called Clexicon, which was one of the first kind of LGBTQ, but particularly for lesbians um, convention in Las Vegas. And I walked out with... Um, Kat Burrell and Dominique Provost Chokley, who play kind of our iconic couple, uh, Way Hot, Waverly and Nicole Hot. And it was like 2,000 people spilling out of the room, cheering for these beautiful, beautiful actors, um, screaming, kind of like quoting our words back to us. And I was just like, oh, this is a thing. You, you guys are like the Beatles, the gay Beatles now. Um, I mean, maybe some of the Beatles were gay. We'll never know. But um, I, I really had that moment of like, oh, my God, people love this. But even more gratifying and maybe selfishly from a writer perspective, people understood what I was trying to do, what I was trying to say, what I was trying, what kind of stories I was trying to tell that, you know, it was a show chock full of women 
but not all the women were the same. They're all three-dimensional and different and flawed and messed up and more like the women in my, in my life, right? Like I think so often when women have to play superheroes or action heroes, they kind of feel like they have to be Bruce Willis in a tank top. Um, and I just feel like we just didn't want to tell those stories. We really wanted messy, complicated, different women. Um, but I'd say that was one moment. But just seeing it grow, like, it still feels so surreal. I can't really explain it. I just, I, again, I'm Canadian. I don't want to, I don't want to get too big for my britches or they'll take my passport. So um, it's been just a trip, you know? Um, and certainly I think that's part of my frustration, though. Like, I live in my bubble, but my bubble is full of passionate, loud fans yelling on Leslie's uh, timeline. So I, <laughs> you know, I just want to parade them all into someone's office and be like, this too could be yours. But also, if you say yes, I'll take them out of your office. So that's my other guarantee. Um, at, at this point, do you sincerely believe that you have that much control or wrangling power over them or not? Oh, absolutely not. And I live in <laughs> delighted fear all the time. I mean, but that's the journey too, right? Is as you go through a show that is beloved, you have to, you really have to be careful not to get too invested in the fandom and fan service. And what also happens is shockingly, not all the fans want the same thing. So I'm super active on social media. Some might say pathological. I really do have a relationship with the fans and I love it. I make no apologies for it. I feel like We've built this weird kind of family with in-jokes and we all like tweet and have whiskey and it's just fun and it just feels kind of informal and I like feeling like an underdog, to be honest, right? I like kind of like being a part of it. And I remember when TV shows made me feel like that, like just delighted and kind of like shocked and both furious and vaguely horny. I'm like, what a wonderful feeling <laughs> to give to someone else. Um but, you know, I know I, I love the fans and I understand that things are complicated. And I, this isn't my first rodeo. It's my second rodeo. No. Um, so, you know, I know that, like, you never can get too high on your own supply as far as being beloved. But you also can't take the criticism too much to heart or you'll just die. You, you've talked a lot about the power of the LGBT community and, you know, talking about the present, the show's presence on social media. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, but I actually officiated my best friend's wedding, and I've known her for decades now, she met her wife through the Winona Herb community, and I was able to officiate their wedding. And to see the amount of, of people, the Herber community who who turned up for that, that's power. And, you know, obviously, as, you know, a part of the, that community myself, seeing yourself on screen is just, I can't, there's not enough words to, to say what kind of power that has. But from your vantage point, how much do you think the support of the LGBT community and its vocal base on, on social helped the show last as long as it did. I mean, usually, typically, Canadian acquisitions struggle to break through domestically, and that's not the case here. No, no. I mean, Canadian TV's had a weird year, right? They've had Schitt's Creek and Orphan Black and Letterkenny. Like, I feel like we're starting to make strides, but... Um, I owe them everything. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say that. I think we would not be where we are with the, uh, the LGBTQ community. But I also feel like I came from a show before White on Earth called Lost Girl. And just given my own personal life, I just knew that this was a um, community that was underserved and tempted to love genre, but didn't really have the privilege of seeing themselves on screen in genre represented. Um, 
But, you know, I really do want to say, like, ERP is there for everyone. Like, we have a billion Doc Holiday fans who show up, dads and daughters dressed in mustaches and cowboy hats at the conventions too, right? And, um, and you always have to be careful, too, that the online community is not the entirety of the fandom, right? You have to be, even in this day and age, you have to be like, okay, there's still people on, at home who are watching it who aren't you know, in the Midwest who maybe do love the dudes or whatever and aren't kind of tweeting about it necessarily. But, um, but what an honor, what a privilege and what a, what a responsibility. You know what I mean? I really just feel like, I feel so grateful that they've adopted our show and they've liked what we've done. And when you tell me stories about people who have met in the Urper community, I'm just jealous because like, yeah, there's all these Urper friends and families and couples and, I'm just going to have to raise so many Erper babies. I can just already tell. No. Um, <laughs> um, but like, it's crazy though. Like I'm, I'm sure it's crazy when a fandom grows beyond its creation, right? Like now that fandom is its own kind of beast and they really live by this code of like polite, no chill and charity work and, you know, never giving up, but also never being cruel. And, just to see what the fans themselves have decided is their code and what they've kind of taken from the show and used in their own lives and how they conduct themselves is pretty astonishing. I want to talk a little bit about the show textually as we head into the second half of the season. So the the show kind of started off as being the premise of this young woman trying to redeem a dark family legacy. And along the way, there have been these constant questions of whether she's actually going to fall victim to the Dark Family legacy and and whether this was going to be a show that had an optimistic or a tragic conclusion. And and I definitely feel like where we left in the, the, not really cliffhanger, but in the first half of the season, she'd done a couple things that are going to be hard, difficult for her to come back from. Have your conceptions of the arc of the series and specifically what redemption would actually mean for this character, for these characters, have they shifted since the original pitch that you made? Yeah, I will just say it. She she shot someone in the back, which is pretty brutal. Uh, and that was definitely one of the most shocking things my own ever did. Um, from her perspective, she was like, this is just one way to break the cycle. That guy's coming back. His family's coming back. You don't know what it takes to beat this person. You don't know what it takes to make these decisions. Um, I would say just given the glory of the cast, my expectations have shifted insofar as how far we can push these characters. Like, again, even for me to talk about a female character who made that choice is astonishing. I find it amazing. I remember in first season fighting about whether she could have gotten drunk and gotten in a car. And I had this huge fight with someone who was like, it makes her so unlikable. I was like, oh, just you wait. Just so you wait till mythical season four. For me, the show has always been about, though, like trying to get out from under your history, trying to get out from under your family, right? Like, what if you're descended from someone who's considered the greatest American hero of all time? but you know he's kind of a shit. Like, you know he's kind of a jerk. Like, he basically cursed your family. And the truth is, like, I'm really interested in losers and underdogs, and in a weird way, Wynonna is that. She is not the healthiest person to take up this mantle, but because I think she's so familiar with failure and still getting up every day and trying again, that's what's going to help her succeed in a way, maybe the heroes who came before her failed. I think because she's so honest about her own flaws um, and the fact that she can't do it alone, that's what's maybe going to hopefully make her succeed. Have you gotten 
pushback over the years from Americans with particular investment in the history of Wyatt Earp and the Old West about about this particularly iconoclastic take that a Canadian woman is having on on this very manly, macho American history? Hey, I, I was born in Boston, so if I want to talk <laughs> trash about Earp, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I think it was definitely I think it was definitely more a concerted first season. Like, what exactly are we saying about Wyatt Earp? And then, of course, one of the characters on the show is Doc Holliday, right? He's, like, immortalized. We may or may not have made him a vampire. We totally did. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's what I, sometimes I talk to Tim Rozon, who's just the most delightful actor who plays Doc Holliday, and I'm like, is it weird that you're playing, like, a real person? And he's like, extremely. Um, so there was definitely pushback, but you know what? I feel like there's always more pushback on... LGBTQ stuff to be honest like that's kind of my line in the sand so like even like kind of trying to massage how bad Wyatt is and whether he was a victim of circumstances or his own ego I'm okay kind of like dancing around that but it's more when people are like does Waverly actually have to be a lesbian she's so pretty I'm like yes she absolutely 100% has to be bisexual sorry like you just always know your own you just have to, it's all compromised all the time when you're a showrunner, but then you truly have to know which things are just not going to be negotiable for you. So, no, I think, I mean, I can imagine that there would be some pushback to this story coming from a Canadian show, but I can imagine significantly more pushback for this show coming from a woman and this show having an LGBTQ plus perspective as well. So, yeah, like Waverly is also an angel, she's a bisexual angel, but like. Again, this is the beauty of maybe being flying under the radar is by the by the time maybe it's an issue, I'm like, well, it's already been shot and it's on the air and everybody loved it. So let's just keep going. I mean, that is one of the joys for me of the show and maybe being a cult kid or cult show, if nothing else, is that like, I feel like people weren't really paying attention for a long time. So we very carefully and thoughtfully did what we wanted. And now it's too late to change it. So there you go. <laughs> you, you, you've talked with you've talked with such love about several members of the cast so far. When you go back to the original script in your mind, the original pilot, uh, with you know obviously no actors in mind, which characters have changed the most as a result of watching the actors and what they do best? Great question. I mean, I will say I have never felt such a kismet between character and performer as Melanie Scofano as Winona Earp. I truly feel like. She is one of the most talented, instinctual actors I've ever had the privilege of watching work. Um, and like a lot of times you have a vision in your head as a writer and then you settle for the best version of that. Melanie as Winona consistently elevates everything that character can do. She can go through 10 emotions in one scene, which makes me an extremely lazy writer because I'll make her. Um, as far as watching characters change, I mean, I have such affection for all the cast, and I think that is really what the fans have fallen in love with, is just, like, the feelings they have for one another and their commitment to the work screams off screen. Like, nobody is mailing it in, even if they're, like, getting possessed by tentacle goo. It is 100% the Meryl Streep <laughs> getting possessed by tentacle goo. Um, I guess I would say Dominique provost Chokli as Waverly has really kind of transformed the most, just like she was so young and fresh and I think she was on the verge of giving up acting before she got the role of Waverly so seeing her grow and come into her own has been just so joyful the other truth is like a few of our actors have felt more comfortable um coming out uh vis-a-vis -vis their sexuality so I think like just what the show has given them is a chance to maybe like 
embrace who they were meant to be instead of who they were told to be. And that has also personally been kind of gratifying for me to just see them feel like the fans and the love has given them permission to really explore who they really are and how they identify. Now, at this point, after, you know, four and a bit seasons and all of that time interacting with people, how good have you gotten at predicting the things that fans are going to love and be excited about? And how often are you just astonished by the way that someone responds to something where the fandom sort of goes completely opposite of what you anticipated to a big plot twist? I would say I'm, I'm delusional about what I think the fans will respond to. And like some things are pretty much a gimme. Like if you have a really sexy reunion intimate scene on a set of stairs between two women, I'm like, I don't think people are going to hate this. Um, but, you know, famously in season three, there was like a clip in the trailer where like somebody licks a potato and like people lost their mind for six months. They were like sending potatoes. They had like potato gate. They were like, uh, it's, it, but like, that's what I mean when I say it feels like a family. It's so joyful for me, too, to be like, oh, you guys really love that? I did not even think twice about that. Um, I, I So that's what keeps it fresh, you know, is that you, you hope and pray that you will make people feel a certain way. But also what people take away from the stories in the show and the relationships is always so interesting and fresh. Um, so now you've got these six remaining episodes do you feel like if this was, and I'm going to knock on wood that it's not for you, but if you feel like this is truly the end of the show, do you feel like you got to say a proper goodbye? And does it tell the story that you really wanted to tell? Oh, has anyone cried on this podcast before? Um, <laughs> Just me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Several several people have, honestly. <laughs> but go right ahead if you want to join their ranks. I I hesitate to say it's the end. But I'm extremely proud of, of this season. I, and I'm extremely proud of the last episode of season four. And I think there are worse feelings to be known for than someone reads a book and gets to the end and says, oh, my gosh, that was so wonderful. But I wish there was more. If that's the feeling people have at the end of season four, that's pretty rare in television. Um, I would very much like to, if nothing else, and I'm really, really hoping that Schmermont Plus, Schmermont Plus, you know, picks us up. I would really like to do a movie. I think that would be something I'd really love to do. I'd really love the privilege of coming back in a few years, if nothing else, Deadwood style or Veronica Mars and doing a movie and kind of picking up the characters years later. I think I know what that would look like. Um, I think it'd be interesting to tell a story about legacy and aging and all those themes. Um, but yeah, I'm happy with the end of season four. And yeah, I hope so. the fans will be too. So knowing that, that this may very well be the end, did you keep anything from the show, anything from the set? Maybe the, the Peacemaker? I didn't keep Peacemaker because I feel like that's Sorthanos who keep if she wants it. Same with Wynonna's leather jacket. I feel like that's hers. But I did keep some stuff. I kept some stuff from the finale. I may have kept a Waverly cheerleading uniform. I kept some wardrobe and I just kept some pieces from the bar that just mattered to me. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, wrapping up, you know, considering that you've had such a bumpy road with IDW and see what happens when the business doesn't work as the business should. Has this experience changed the way you approach to who you're in business with going forward? Uh, that's such a good question. I'd say I kind of have 
for a long time now and previously to Winona, I've had as much as possible a no jerks policy. I think the work is so hard. The business is so grueling that when you have a choice to work with people who at the very least are going to be kind and try hard, it's worth it, both on and off screen. Um, but I'd be remiss if I said, like, I have never not thought of myself as an underdog. So I just want to make the best show possible with the best people possible. And hopefully post Earth, I will get to do that. And that will still be a privilege. But um, you just never know, too, right? That's the thing. Like, you, when you start out in business with people, you don't know necessarily how it's going to go and what's going to happen. And things change. And people leave networks and people leave comic book companies and people leave businesses and people leave shows and things change. And you just have to be honest with yourself once again about when it's worth fighting to keep doing it or when it's time to say, thanks so much, but uh, we're going to write a space show or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, looking at, at what's next, you know, I, I wrote a story a couple of years ago that you sold this adventure drama called Axe Holes, which is a great title, by the way, to sci-fi. Uh, What's the status of that project and what's next for you? So Axwells is definitely still uh, chugging along. Again, NBC is going through tons of changes. So I'm assuming that after this podcast, they're going to order an 18 episode season. And I'm excited about it. Um, and I have a bunch of other stuff in development. You know, I've, I've been working so hard on season four. I mean, on for, you know, Four seasons took seven years of my life. So I've had, like every other writer in the world, I have a file on my computer that's like, here's a crazy idea for this. Here's a crazy idea for that. Um, I would say I have lots of interesting stuff in development, working with some people I'm really excited about. Um, but the thing I always want to do is just like promote female stories and LGBTQ stories and stick those characters in universes universes and worlds that maybe they don't normally get to be the heroes in. That's what I'm really interested in. I want, I want to spin Leslie's question about having had this experience, do you have different thoughts about who you go into business with? Having had the sort of strange budgetary and, and money experience you've had, do you have to train yourself not to dream on a smaller scale? Do you, or is it easy for you to just say, okay, I'm not going to pay any attention to what happened with the money men before I'm going to still dream big. I always dream big. I think you have to dream big or you're dead. Like, especially even in the writing room, you have to, you can pull it back later, but you have to have fun. Um, I think working within budget constraints made me a much better storyteller. I think it really taught me the importance of character and just maximizing where you could um, but you know what? Fine. If Marvel calls, I'm sure I can figure out how to do a space <laughs> battle. You know, I relish the challenge. I relish the challenge. So I'm, I'm ready, you know? And we like to wrap these interviews always with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? Uh, I am finally catching up on things like Atlanta, which I am just astonished by. I am just amazed by the shifts in tone in that show and the confidence of voice and how friggin' funny it is. And I also felt like I was saving the last few episodes of Good Place on my DVR for years because I just was like, it's just a delicious treat. It's like the, the bacon at the end of breakfast. If I know it's there, I just know I have it for a bad day. But I finally caught up on the finale this weekend and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. It was so uncool. But God, what an incredible show. Just like so 
interesting and brave and high concept and warm and how aspirational. I like watching stuff that still makes me feel a little bit terrified and stupid. Does that make sense? Like, I like watching stuff that I'm like, don't get too cocky. I have no idea how they did that, but I really, really love it. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was my delight. Thanks, you guys. The final episodes of Winona Earp air Fridays on Sci-Fi starting March 5th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Lots to choose from this week, Dan. This week, we've got Generation on HBO Max, Oprah's interview with Harry and Meghan on CBS, CBS All Access, by the way, is officially RIP and becomes Paramount Plus and launches the real-world Homecoming and docuseries For Heaven's Sake, Good Girls returns on NBC, OWN launches Delilah, Netflix bows Last Chance You Basketball, and ABC's Thursday dramas return with Grey's Anatomy, Station 19, and A Million Little Things. Dan, what you got? It is, as you say, a week with lots of stuff, but it's also a second consecutive week in which the big Friday release window features no big Friday releases from Netflix, from Amazon, from Hulu, from any of our favorite streaming services, which is a little odd. If last week was basically unprecedented in that respect, then at least this week is precedented. But man, what what, what up with this, y'all? Uh, I'm going to blame the pandemic, Dan. I, there, there's I know a that's pandemic. what you're doing here. Yeah. yeah, there's a pandemic. Anyway, it's all, it's, it's a little strange. Um, so, so let's see. What do I want to focus on this week? Uh, it actually premiered as part of the Paramount Plus launch on Thursday, where magically I pulled up my Apple TV and my CBS All Access uh, icon had become a Paramount Plus icon. <gasps> Did it say right. a that there was a mountain of entertainment attached to it? <laughs> I don't know, but basically it's the exact same user interface as CBS All Access, which is basically the exact same user interface as the last redesign of HBO Max, which is the same user interface as blah, blah, blah. It's it's a lot of the same user interface. Someone needs to come up with a different user interface. Anyway, for heaven's sake, uh, it comes from Funnier Die and a couple of the creators of American Vandal. Those are the the names attached that are being used to kind of sell the show, I guess, which is not exactly accurate because if you go into it expecting it to be American Vandal it's really really not and I, I think probably I kind of did and the first couple episodes really were pretty bad um but then I really found myself liking the show a lot in the last four or five episodes of its eight episode run so I think there's a really good show here, and I think a lot of people will enjoy the show. You just have to get your expectations straight. You have to go through a couple clunky episodes. The premise is basically creators Mike Milden and Jackson Rowe are they're comedians professionally, not you know hugely successful comedians. It's not like Steve Martin and Robin Williams doing a documentary series. It's, you know, a couple of young people who are aspiring stand-up comics. Uh, and what they are doing is they are experimenting with being detectives by attempting to solve an 80-year-old cold case involving one of Mike Milton's great-great-uncles who went missing in Ontario in 1934, and no one knows what happened to him. And that's 
the story and they're trying to get answers and eventually it becomes a solid show but it's it's a it's a bit of a struggle and so I'm just telling people stick with it because it gets worth it but also I didn't laugh in the first couple episodes and I wasn't really invested in the mystery but they're only 31 minutes so plug along um Last Chance You Basketball, I've watched two episodes of eight, and I'm looking forward to watching the rest of it this weekend. Uh, Last Chance You, for those who don't know, has really become the the premium sports documentary franchise on TV in recent years. It is, it is just so top-notch, and the basketball season is along the same lines, mixture of underdog sports, excitement, uh, human interest stuff, and college coaches yelling at people. So it, it succeeds in that respect. And uh, so that's premiering next week, and it's good stuff. And finally, Generation on HBO Max is the best way to look at it is it's a lighter version of Euphoria that leaves you worried about a young generation, but maybe not feeling horrified and sad and miserable at all times about it. Um, It comes from Zelda and Daniel Barnes and... Zelda Barnes was 17 when the script sold, and Daniel Barnes is one of her two fathers. And it's basically about a group of high schoolers in, I believe, Anaheim, uh, and it's their lives. And they do all of the inappropriate things that Euphoria has allowed us to know that teens are apparently doing. Um, so, so, yay. Uh, lots of drug use, ever so much sex, um, all manner of sex. It's got a lot of darkness. It's got some very strange story structure decisions that I don't understand at all. It's got some really clunky choices here and there. I don't know that I have ever watched a show that uses songs in a more on-the-nose way. Like, I every single needle drop says exactly what's happening in the scene that it's been paired with in a way that... I found a little <laughs> amateurishly charming in the first episode, and then by the third or fourth episode, kind of wondered why they didn't go for more, say, symbolic choices, as opposed to exactly illustrating what's happening on screen. Uh, but it's sometimes clever. It's got a a really great cast. Uh, probably the person who people are going to talk about most prominently is Justice Smith, who, uh, since the get-down Hollywood has been kind of pushing as a star. And even in the get down, I wasn't really convinced. This is this is what, to me, Hollywood has been seeing in him all along. This, this to me, is his arrival as a star. He is, he is so great and so likable here. And a lot, most of the cast, I would say, is really good. And then you've never seen most of the young actors. The older actors, quote-unquote, older actors, the parents, include people like Martha Plimpton, uh, who's always great. You know, you can always put Martha Plimpton on my TV, and, and that will always make me happy. So I think there's a lot of a lot of potential here. On the other hand, it, it does, to some degree, feel like a show written by someone who had never written a TV show before. And so ample potential, uh, some clunkiness, but definitely ample potential, which seems like a good transition to mention that. That's right, Dan. We'll we'll have showrunners Zelda and Daniel Barnes next week on the show for a showrunner spotlight interview pegged to the debut of HBO Max's Generation. And for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. And with that, it feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
Subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter, so come say hi. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, etc. If you have more tangible questions for upcoming mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.